0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a
3: food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards.
2: To ice cream shops.
0: Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city.
2: We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director here at HRN. Here with Katie Mosman-Wadler and Hannah Forden.
2: Hey there. What's up, Kat?
3: It feels really early for a Thursday.
2: (laughs) It's. it's I just feel like I'm early in all kinds of ways. (laughs) Um, We also have in studio with us Kevin chang barnum Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi, Kevin.
3: Kevin's one of our new uh, interns. I to say
2: good morning for some reason.
3: That's because it is the morning. That's right. Surprise. It's also
2: not Thursday. It's not five o'clock. Surprise. We're doing a very special episode today with a very special guest.
3: It is. The one and only. Rob Newton.
4: <laughs> Welcome, Rob. Hey, how are you?
2: Um, the so one and only. That's the very, one fancy. And very only. fancy. I mean, there might be others, but they're imposters. They're <laughs> not the don't want to talk about, about
4: it. They don't have a book coming out today? Exactly. Bingo. That's
2: very, why we're here. very, special, and this is why we're early Rob, you mentioned before the show, this is your first stop on your book promo tour.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of surreal. It's finally here, and here we are. Thank mm-hmm. you for having me.
3: We first talked about this book with you two years ago when we all started kind of planning this gala, which we'll talk about in a minute, and you were in the in the weeds with writing this book, and it's here.
4: I know. It, uh, and I had been working on it you know, f- for a long time, even prior to that, and... It just seems, surreal is the best word I can come up with because it's sort of like opening a restaurant, too. You know, you finally put this thing out there and you don't know how people are going to react to it. And we'll see. It's here. It's here.
2: (laughs) level
1: of control release even
0: even greater than like opening a restaurant because you're putting your book out into the world and it, when you're in a restaurant you can stand and look at people's faces totally and experience it with the book it's sort of it's out of yeah. it's yeah. very abstract i can't
4: take it back now i still haven't found a typo knock on wood and if you find one out there please don't instagram me tell me do it <laughs> don't I, know. I don't even want to know
2: <laughs> yeah thank um, the lord so rob this the the book I'm actually holding in my hands right now, you might hear me flipping through the pages. It's so gorgeous and it doesn't look like every other book. It's so beautifully laid out. The photography is amazing. The colors are just gorgeous and like the cover is this kind of beautiful, like muted gray linen. What did it feel like when you held it in your hands and like was it what you pictured exactly when you picked up your first proof, we'll say?
4: That's a lot, man. Um, I had always envisioned having the cover be some winding road, which has actually wound up um, not working for reasons, I'll tell you in just one second. Um, But the the picture that I thought was going to be the cover is is one of the first few pages. Um, So it didn't feel like what I thought it was going to be in that sense. But having said all that, I love the cover. That was shot in the Delta at like 6 in the morning. I I worked with two different photographers, the food and main photographers, uh, Emily Dorio or Emily Hall. Um, And then Eva Saad is like a really badass landscape photographer. Um, And she got that shot really early in the morning. So it's better than what I thought it was gonna be. And the reasons we didn't go with the road is, and you know, I have a strong personality and strong opinions and all that jazz, but uh, I listened to the publishers when they, when they, publishers when they said that if we go down that, I guess that's a pun I'm making. Go down the road <laughs> of having a road; uh, it would look like a travel book, and they were right. Oh. You know, it didn't evoke like food, mm-hmm. um, and they were right, and it turned out cool. And I don't do a lot of green stuff, so that's also kind of weird. But I like it. You know, I'm Mister like blue and gray and like uh-huh. I don't know, but yeah, I'm really really happy with it. It turned out really nice. So you
2: got you have. Precise rows instead of a winding road here. But They're what are still these kind of? Rows of?
4: Uh, I think it's soybeans. It's, yeah,
2: gorgeous.
4: Yeah, but I'm not really sure. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> We're going to go with that.
3: <laughs> can you talk about like sort of the concept of the book, what people can expect when they crack it open?
4: For sure. The concept, um, overarching idea, is to break the South down into five subregions. Um, upper South, Deep South, Gulf Coast, Low Country and Tidewater Coastal Plains, which is kind of Virginia, North Carolina. But within that sort of discussion and within that context, I wanted to sort of lay the groundwork about who was sort of in that region after Native Americans that kind of made the region what it is, culinarily. But then more important to me, not maybe not more important, more interesting to me, is who's arriving now and what their contributions are to Southern food and what it may look like going forward. <clears throat> what that's some, really what I'm into.
3: What are some of like what are some examples of that like kind of new exciting developments within Southern cuisine?
4: Oh, there's so many. Um, the Kurdish population in Nashville. Um, I have a recipe in the Deep South part of that book. Um, all the Vietnamese stuff in the Gulf Coast. That's so interesting to me. Um, the Filipino population on the coast of. Uh, right the coast of Virginia is kind of surprising to people. Um, things like that, you know, and the Latino population everywhere yeah. in the South. It's, it's, you know, if you just go to any town of any size, you can almost always find a Latino market. You can almost always find an Asian grocer of some type. Um, and I used to, when I was had restaurants in Brooklyn, I'd go down South to do events. I would often drive because I really like a road trip And I would have to stop in some town to buy some weird ingredient that I was going to (laughs) need. And I, you know, it just sort of put me on this path of thinking about all of these different groups that are living in the South and they're Southerners too. They live there, you know, and I just found the whole concept really interesting. And I think if you get out and look for it, um, it's there. I find that cool.
2: Can we talk about your kind of background in early childhood growing up since, you know, is also like a very personal book. Um, I, I discovered a few years ago that you're from Mountain Home, right? Yeah. Do you know about Mountain Home? I do because one of my dearest friends is from Mountain Home. Get out of here! And uh, uh, she taught me a cheer, but I I wish I could remember. Oh it. God, I won't um, know that. Yeah, I, but uh, even if I did, I wouldn't I've do ever, it. Ever learned? Is it like um,
4: the our, our mascot is the bombers? Is it some kind of bomber I, cheer?
2: I, you know, I'm I'm gonna be a terrible friend and not remember the cheer. But, I'm glad you don't remember. Uh, <laughs> that's it, not something that it comes naturally to me. Yeah, uh, the cheerleading part, but. Totally. Um, Tell me no. Mountain Home because I think it, it's a small town, right?
4: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's up close to Missouri. Um, it's really beautiful there. It's really hard to get to because it's um, from the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And where my family is actually really, really from going back to the 1800s is about 30 miles outside of this small town, um, a really small place called Oakland, which is super in the middle of nowhere. And it kind of ends uh, where these lakes are. Um, so... It's like 10,000 people. My whole family is from there forever, and it's just really beautiful. Uh, I like visiting there. I don't know if I could live there, but um, it's I, this is where I'm from, you know, so I enjoy going back and visiting.
2: What's the food scene
4: like? <laughs> well, there's a Thai restaurant that wow. my mom likes a lot. I've yet to go eat there with her, but I will soon. Um, There was a Vietnamese place, but it went out of business, I'm not sure what that means. Um, There are a couple catfish houses, which I really enjoy, I love fried catfish. Those are pretty fun, Um, there's some barbecue places there, but I don't really think Northern Arkansas is known for barbecue so much. I would say using the word food scene might be a stretch, but there are places to eat. <laughs>
3: yeah, what about like home cooking? Like yeah. what's that like in the Ozark area where you're from?
4: cook is called, I mean, the area is called the Ozarks. Um, yeah. It's really simple, really um, like peasanty. Um That's one of the things I get into in the book, actually. It's trying to sort of break this overarching stereotype of Southern food as being A bowl of hush puppies and shrimp and grits. Like I never ever had shrimp and grits growing up because that's we didn't even eat grits. We eat a lot of cornmeal in many different iterations. But grits and collard greens was not like a thing. We would pick poke salad in the spring and turnip greens sometimes, spinach and things like that. My mom like like still does like greens a lot, my dad not so much. But a lot of pork pretty decent amount of foraging. Like people kinda get into that there. Mm Um, I often tell the story, the the first mushroom I ever had in my entire life was a morel that we'd picked like this spring, one spring. Um, A lot of trout fishing going on there. A lot of bean eating. Pinto (laughs) beans and white beans, mostly pinto beans.
3: Was preserving a big part of the culture? Oh, totally, yeah, absolutely.
4: Yeah, we had a garden every summer. Um, My mom would can green beans every summer. Tons of tomatoes and then she'd make tomato sauce. Not like Italian, just, just like tomatoes in a jar Yeah, and you can do whatever you want to in the winter. Yeah, A lot of wild grapes, we would pick wild grapes in the fall and my mom would make jelly.
2: What kind of grapes are we talking about, like Concord or? They're
4: Concord-ish but I don't really know what their name mm-hmm. is but they're like Concord.
2: Like a thick
3: skin. Yeah.
4: Concord, right?
3: Would they be like yeah. a muscadine? Is that, no, it's no, not that. Not, I know what that is for yeah. sure.
4: You know you can get those here in Chinatown this time of year.
3: Really? Yeah. Let's
4: go. Yeah. For real? Yeah. I I would bet you this that there's some there now because it's this is the fall, right? Yeah.
3: Well, I was yeah. in I was in Alabama a few weeks ago and we were at a farm and they had big vines of muscadines.
4: Where were was, you in Alabama?
3: Uh, near Auburn. Oh, cool. Yeah, so pretty far south, but yeah, they were like they were. I think like right now they'd be perfect. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, the I season think, for it. I think they're out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. I'm curious if you can kind of talk about breaking up the regionality of this book and, like, how you approached, you said, five different regions of the. book.
4: Yeah, it's going to make people mad, I'm sure. But (laughs) it's
0: so interesting, I mean, it's,
2: like, especially you're talking about, like, your experience of Southern cuisine is obviously very different than someone on the Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you decide to draw those boundaries? And, like, if you had to, I don't know, like summarize each one with like a sentence
0: of like, what is the
4: essence of that region's version of Southern food? Um, Well, I sort of came upon this notion when I was planning and running Seersucker because I was doing Southern food uh, in Brooklyn, in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was using my experience in the South and my desire to, to delve deeper into Southern cuisine and Southern history and Southern food um, a little more I just sort of used that approach um, because I had respect for these different regions. I knew that my south was different than other people's experience of southern cuisine so I just had these imag- somewhat imaginary lines in my head when I would want to work on a dish or work on a concept for the restaurant um, and then these, they just became more solidified as the book moved on mm-hmm. Um at one point, I wanted to have the Gulf Coast and the Delta be like a region, but it was just kind of hard to delineate on a map, but I feel like the Gulf Coast is so connected to the Delta, obviously, with the Mississippi River, mm-hmm. but in um, m- migration patterns in the early 20th century, and there's a lot of really interesting things going on there, but I just felt it made a little bit more sense to break it up the way that I did. So it's it's Upper South, which kind of cuts my home state right in half, which makes sense to me because Arkansas is kind of the tale of, of two states. It's very mountainous up north and it's very flat and uh, has the delta in the south. Um, it was also divided that way around war and slavery too, which is a whole different show. Um, so it kind of goes straight across and Upper South incorporates Kentucky and West Virginia, um, Tennessee. and then the deep south is the other part of Arkansas. Uh, the upper part of louisiana and just, then it kind of goes west across all the way down to i-10 uh, which cuts across like mobile and it um, cuts across those southern states so there's you know louisiana arkansas mississippi alabama all the way over to georgia is what i call the deep south and then the gulf coast is the bottom part of those states you know so louisiana alabama Controversially, I put just a little bit of Florida in there uh, in the panhandle because it does feel kind of southern there. I agree the with that Florida The rest of Florida assessment. is so. kind of not really the south, but <laughs> maybe somebody should write their own book about that state because I think there's a lot of interesting <laughs> things going on there. Um, but I just don't think of Tampa and think of southern food. Um, and then the Gulf uh, Coastal Plains and Tidewater is – um, most of Virginia, most of North Carolina, um, right up till and through the Piedmont until you get up um, around Asheville and you start getting into uh, the mountains, mm-hmm. and then that you get back into the Mountain South, which is also the Upper South. Mm-hmm.
2: So the book covers a lot of like traditional cuisines that also have a lot of kind of immigrant cuisine influences on them, um, and I'd love to hear your perspective on how sort of cuisines get transplanted or interpreted when chefs move around and when home cooks move around. Um, And I'm specifically thinking of, I I just also remembered from your bio that you used to be the executive chef at Simon Pierce in Quechee, Vermont. Do you
4: know that place too? I
2: do, I used to live up the street from there. Um, what is going she's been on? following you. Been, like, try,
4: You're stalking your me. <laughs> is this some kind of intervention? What is <laughs> happening right now?
2: <laughs> but, uh,
4: who's going to come out of the door?
2: It's like, about <laughs> as far from the south as you could get.
4: Man, Vermont's gorgeous. And, um, mm-hmm.
2: and the, the, so Simon Pierce, if any of our listeners are not familiar, it's this amazing artisan glass-blowing totally. factory. Uh, it's situated above a water mill in Quechee, Vermont, which is like a typical place to go for leaf peeping and Quechee Gorge is like a local attraction. You go out and go swimming in very, very cold water. And the restaurant in Simon is particularly like awesome to eat at because you get to eat on all of the ceramics and glassware that come from the factory. So it's like an incredibly luxurious experience. Um, but you're, you're in Vermont, which is You know, it's a super white state. Um, The cuisine around you is pretty, like, typical New England. So how did you approach that executive chef role and, like, bring in your background? And then how do you see, like, types of cuisine patterns getting stamped or changed kind of throughout the South and throughout the book? That's a big question.
4: Man, that's a mouthful. I feel like you're on the Vermont tourism board (laughs) a little bit. Uh, I want to know where you... Li- I lived in South Pomfret. Where did you live?
2: Oh, I lived in Hanover. Um, oh, in New Hampshire. Did yeah. you go to
4: Dartmouth or something?
2: Uh, I went to Middlebury, but then I worked at a tech company.
4: I see. Yeah. I see. All right, back to your question. <laughs> um, man, it's beautiful up there. It's just hard to make a living in Vermont. Um, well, I would say that uh, that was a long time ago, and I believe the path that most chefs take is to get as far away from mm. from whence you came, um, and that was a period of time when I just left New York City, um, and I really wasn't aware of my southernness. You know, I, I was aware that I was from the South, and I was aware that everybody thought I should know how to make fried chicken, but I didn't really care about that at that time, and I really wasn't exploring. I was just skimming the surface with like Edna Lewis, and you know. Frank Stitt and these people who are legends in Southern food. Um, so I really wasn't doing too much with Southern food. I was more French and, of course, Asian because that's always been a constant in my life. Um, <clears throat> and the types of food that goes on at that restaurant, it's, it's very chef driven, so you can kind of do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't say that I was doing a lot of Southern food there. Is that even close to answering your question? No.
2: Yeah, so so like, I, I don't know, I feel like we meet a lot of chefs who start off their careers kind of doing what they think people want them to do. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we meet a lot of people who kind of eventually start like peeling back those layers and getting down to, you know, what they may not have realized they were driven to do from the beginning, which sounds like a little cliche, but I wonder if that at all is like relatable for you as something where you sort of decided to go back to really understand Southern cuisine and what that means?
4: I think it was part of the process of getting toward there. I think at that point in my career, that's a really good, really intense question. You're making me think. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I I think I was still finding myself culinarily because I was probably 30 mm-hmm. and probably wasn't ready to be an executive chef, but I had all this New York City experience, which is kind of a rare thing in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it is. Yeah. So... The, uh, that's what, just, where I, just where I found myself. And it was a great learning experience. And I think that young chefs or wherever you are in your career, I think you have to go through that process of, you, hopefully you'll find out what your cuisine is and what your, I mean, it sounds very lofty and very narcissistic in a way, but it just takes time and, and life experience and understanding your history and understanding where you come from and delving into it. To, get, to arrive at a point where you feel like you have something to say. Mm-hmm. And that took like 10 more years before I opened my first restaurant that was very, very personal to me.
2: Can I ask you about a specific recipe? Never. Um, <laughs> please, Because uh, it made me really hungry this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the trout that we were. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because you mentioned trout, you were talking about the Ozarks. Um, totally. In the book you have a very, very, um, you know, maybe some would say a surprising interpretation of trout, which is a Vietnamese recipe. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it's called Chaka. <clears throat> For all you Vietnamese people out there, I'm sure I'm butchering the way that that's pronounced. I don't... I, don't, I
2: left that to you.
4: you know, so yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I I know how to order iced coffee and beer and pho. And I don't that really know. Said. I don't know how to... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Cafe Sudha. Um So Chaka is a really unique dish that... Uh, you re, I mean, you can get it in other places in Vietnam, but it's a Hanoi specialty, which is in the north, which is a little bit cooler and... In terms of climate, Uh, (laughs) yeah, right. Uh, I don't know. I I just felt there are a lot of Laotians that live in and around uh, Asheville and uh, the mountains. And I met some really interesting people that are growing like sticky rice. And I met this guy who's has like a small kiwi orchard in east, uh, western North Carolina outside of Asheville. Um, and I just felt like that was, it just feels mountainous, and I just felt like to do an interpretation of that dish made sense in that region. I also have bought trout for a very long time uh, from Sunburst Trout, which is right outside of Asheville, so it felt right on that level. Um, it's a family-owned trout farm situation that's been there since I think the 50s or 40s. Um, and I've always loved dill, and th- for those that don't know what chakai is, it's, you get to sort of make it at your table they have like little hot plates they bring out but the fish has kind of already been cooked so you're really just warming it up um so they bring out this fish and they turn on the little burner and you act like you're cooking um but the big moment is when they put just an absolutely insane amount of dill in the pan and it gets wilted down with green onion tops and i don't know that just feels really southern to me and i was sitting in vietnam and eating this and it's obviously the fish has turmeric and all these other marinades on it fish sauce and it takes it away from being southern but it just felt instantly really familiar to me and obviously really really unique by wilting just a ridiculous amount of yeah. dill it's and like
2: it, as much dill as fish mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and
4: it's just I just absolutely adore that dish and I've done it uh, for years and since I've discovered I did it at Nightingale 9 here and I'm doing it in Nashville now and um, I just love it and it's in the book and if you don't have a grill, you can do it in your broiler, you can pan-sear it, and this is all about really uh, the marinade and the dill, and then when you get the dill wilted with the green onion tops, not the bottoms, and then the peanuts get in there, and it's like textural and herbaceous. I I'm
2: like super how, into I it. like how you say it. Of like. Like it's not you doing it. It's not you putting the peanuts there. The peanuts just get in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. They, they, they be, just they magically show up.
4: Yeah. And when you're in Vietnam, you have uh, rice noodles on the table and all these different things spread out, and you can just kind of make your own little situation. And I think it's one of Vietnam's great dishes. <laughs>
2: I'm so <What>? I'm hungry. <laughs> that's, so, that's so delish.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't know, that's probably one of those dishes that people will be like, what the hell, this is not Southern food, but to me it kind of is. There's a lot of Vietnamese people who live in the South, like Arkansas, where I'm from, like Fort Chaffee, Arkansas was like a big, I hate to use the word distribution point, but it was a point where a lot of refugees would be put together and then they would, the government would find them homes and and send them to different places. Um, You know, that's that Vietnamese presence in, in the South, has been happening since the '70s, and <clears throat> it's a fine line between a Bon Me and a Po Boy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're, yes, they're like cousins. You know? <laughs> yeah. So.
2: So, uh, just last last thought on that note, because we have an entire show about this. Um, about what? Uh, so, po boys and
4: Bon Me's. I want to be on of. that show.
2: Thoughts on on uh, what is. Um, Kind of cultural appropriation versus cultural oh my god, I'm not touching that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I Pass. That you, um, you tread that like very beautifully, and thank you. Um, you know, you have you have your own interpretation, and you are not. You're doing the opposite of claiming it, where you're using the book to sort of underscore and reinforce the importance of immigrant cuisines in the South. So I guess that's not a question, but like.
4: Thoughts? I'll God. say thank you. <laughs> and I won't answer that question. <laughs> I don't really feel like I appropriate anything. I, I think appropriation ends when deep respect is there. And I spent a lot of time in Vietnam. I've traveled that country more than most, I would say. Like I've been to weird little towns and cooked in kitchens with nice ladies and... I just have a profound respect for the food. It's a really, really unique place that the French were there for 150 years and left their mark on a lot of things, negative, but certainly on food. Um, It's light and clean, and my experience there, my time understanding or getting to understand that food has changed my food, and that sounds like a very narcissistic, preposterous thing to say, but just the way I approach food now is super light and clean and herbaceous and full of acid and I put fish sauce in everything (laughs) because it's delicious and you should do that. If you don't have fish sauce at home, you're not doing it right. (laughs) (laughs) And if you taste it in your food, you've used too much, so don't be scared of it and it's good in everything. Um, I don't see it as appropriation. I see it as advancing a dialogue about a cuisine and I know, like, I'm a tall white guy who really likes to make Vietnamese food and and other Asian cultures, but I just feel like I'm adding to the conversation instead of trying to take something from it.
2: Yeah, and I I think it relates back, too, to what you said about finding yourself as a chef and as a young chef traveling being so important to kind of getting to find that. um, For sure. Because, you know, we live in a global society now.
4: Yeah. uh, I went to Peru a couple years ago to sort of, explore that idea a little bit because the, the, I don't know how many people know this, but the Japanese after the end of isolation isolationism um, were moving to different places and Peru is one of the um, places that they went and Japanese culture in Peru uh, was so, I won't say seamlessly integrated, but it's so present there that they have their own style of cuisine called Nikkei and they had a Japanese prime minister for about a decade who wound up in jail, but that's a different show, a different story. Um, And they also have the same thing going on with Chinese food there. They have their own style of Chinese Peruvian food um, called chifa. And I just find that really, really fascinating. And it doesn't, the word appropriation doesn't even enter my mind when I think about something like that. And I just think it's really unique and cool and adds to the richness of Peru, which is, if you haven't been, you should go. It's a really cool place. I mean, Machu Picchu, I didn't even get to all that. I just did Lima.
3: (laughs) Just busy with the food. Yeah, yeah,
4: or ayahuasca. I didn't do that either. But um,
3: that's fine. That
2: makes the food come
4: back. Peru is so cool because they (laughs) have, yeah, right. Um, You know, they have a coffee situation going on. They have avocados. They're on the ocean. They have mountains. It's kind of like California. You know, they have their own. I don't think I've had any Peruvian. I thought it all got turned into Pisco. There's, wow. there's also that. Yeah, I've never had that. I would, of course, I would love to try Peruvian wine.
2: There's some decent wines, and, and then, I mean, Peace yeah. is great
4: fun. You know, where I had some wine, uh, the wine in Vietnam, I didn't like so much, but wine that really surprised me was in Burma. Hmm. I had some really cool. uh, a step above drinkable wines from Burma. Tempranillos and Sauvignon Blancs, really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, right? That's what I, that's the noise I made when I saw these things. I was like, huh, what? Yeah.
3: Yeah. On the Burmese wine note, let's take a really quick break, and we'll be right back.
2: Speaking of Burmese wine. <laughs>
3: yeah. Go buy your Burmese wine
4: during the break. Yeah, this is a Burmese wine
3: commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Roger,
2: buy wines of Burma.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. How are we
2: doing on time?
3: Should we come back in? Good. Yeah. A couple uh, more questions in the trivia? all
2: uh-huh.
3: Great. Um, okay, we're back. With HR and Happy Hour with our guest Rob Newton. Um, so Rob, let's talk a little bit more about sort of your fairly recent move from New York to Nashville. And can you talk a little bit about sort of the similarities and differences between the restaurants that you had here in Brooklyn versus um, Dudley Gray and Dudley, mm-hmm. Dudley and Gray, Gray and Dudley, Gray and Dudley in yeah. Nashville. Yeah, you said you mentioned a dish that you have you know brought through, um, but what's what's the same? What's different?
4: Um, about my experiences there versus like living here? Yeah. Well, East Nashville is basically Brooklyn. Totally. Um, there <laughs> are a lot
3: of. Really? So I feel
4: like you've moved down there with me. And uh, I like Nashville. I like being back in the South. I like being close to my family. I can drive there in a day if I need to mm-hmm. or want to. Um, I work for this really cool hotel group called 21C. They're based out of Louisville. They're. Primarily in the South, but they're expanding beyond that um, as we speak. Um, so the, I guess the experiences of owning my own place versus working for a hotel is, I can only speak to my experience about it, and 21C has been incredibly generous from a food perspective because they want their restaurants to be chef-driven which is like a cliche term or whatever, but it's really true. I The menu is completely mine. Some things I do on there, uh, like the chaka that I did in Brooklyn. I don't know, I'm doing cornbread there, the way that I did it at Seersucker. Um, I can't think off the top of my head other dishes that I've done in the past. I'm not really big on that, to be honest with you, like bringing out old war horses of dishes, you know? Mm-hmm. But I did wanna have some dishes on the menu that are in my book. Um, So the Vietnamese coffee cake, or I think it's called Vietnamese coffee cake in the book. Um, I have that on the menu right now. I have the cornbread, like I said, the trout. Um, Oh, I have the, there's country ham and shrimp lumpia. That's from the Tidewater Coastal Plains uh, chapter of the book. Very Filipino-inspired dish. Um, I have that dish in its entirety on the menu right now. Um, so my experiences about cooking in the South versus owning my own restaurant, which I think is the question, it's been a pretty cool transition. You know, it's kind of a unique thing to go from owning own place to going back to working for someone. But sometimes that, that's what happens in life and that's the way thats the way it's playing out. And I'm happy there. I'm happy Nashville. Um, I found a place where I really like to have pho, which is really important to me mm-hmm. <laughs> for whatever reason. What um,
2: place
4: is that? Uh, it's called Huang Tofu. Uh, it's the weirdest name. It's probably misleading to most people. Um
2: <laughs> uh, they it's all beef broth. Yeah,
4: well, they make their own tofu there okay. and they, they sell soy milk. Um, and it's a really nice family owned place. They have a really small menu, which I find refreshing. They have like 10 things. It's wow. really cool. So I would say the only things I really miss in Nashville is Chinese food. Mm. Um. But most of the things that interest me, um, I can find there. And you know, I just want to be back in the South when my, when my book came out. And I also felt after almost twenty years in New York, being from the South, I felt like I had done enough stuff in New York, and it was just, it was, it was time. okay. And it was time to go back down south. And I feel good about all that.
2: Seems reasonable. Yeah. What's the? Is there a difference in the sort of chef to chef culture in Nashville versus in New York or Brooklyn
4: specifically? Uh, it's smaller. Um, I would say I don't know if it's any friendlier or not friendly. I would I would say it's kind of similar. I feel like you see chefs out more probably in Nashville than in New York, but that's probably just due to population density. You know, <laughs> yeah. And, there are more like bars, bars here, here than there, than there are, are. Work hours? like, What? Is
2: there a difference in like work-life balance, or is that it just is crazy to be a chef?
4: Right no, I think you just work hard as a chef. Like <laughs> yeah. That's just what people do. <laughs> no matter do, what. Yeah.
3: Um, I was talking to a chef in Georgia who was mentioning that he believes every major city in America right now wants to have like really great Southern restaurants. Mm. And I'm wondering if you find that to be true, if you see as you've traveled throughout the country that a Southern restaurant is kind of like something that people want, whether the chefs want to open it, people want to eat there. And I frankly feel like there's a lot of maybe bad cliche Southern restaurants Mm -hmm. and maybe not restaurants in line with sort of this hyper local regional sort of cuisine popping up. Mm -hmm. What What have you seen? What do you think?
4: I mean, you could probably make a whole show out of that whether, you know, I, I think somebody did an article in the Oxford American that I was a part of, um, about if you can make Southern food outside of the South. And I, I think the answer is, of course, yes. Um, I think it depends on what your motivations are. Cause you could, you could say that there's like Southern food appropriation, you know, and I don't want to get into all that, but I don't know. What are your motivations? You know, um, I think Cracker Barrel is all over the place, and people think that's southern <laughs> food. You know, no disrespect, Cracker Barrel. Don't yeah, come after me. Maybe not. Um, it's his own thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that I think southern <laughs> food is represented by Cracker Barrel at all. Um,
3: <laughs> rocking rocking chairs. chairs yes. Say otherwise.
4: Yeah. I think there's. Uh, I'll say this. I'll say that, and I, it's in my book too. I think southern cuisine is one of, if not, the greatest of the American cuisines or the American cuisine it's like a it's the most storied the most controversial um so I think it only makes sense that other people in other regions of this country and beyond want to get their hands on that and try it and see what it's all about I don't know if people were having this dialogue when you know French and Italian chefs were coming over in the 50s and 60s and 70s to to New York to cook no one was asking, like, can you even make French food here? They were just doing it. Yeah. So I don't, I think it's kind of the same. Yeah. You know?
3: I like that. I like putting Southern cuisine on the same sort of
4: sure. playing field as. Look at what all these cool Japanese chefs are doing yeah. in Paris. I mean, nobody's even talking about what. They're just making badass food. It doesn't matter that they're Japanese, really. You know, it's like, yeah. who cares? They're really adding something to. Parisian in particular dining scene mm-hmm. I've eaten at some of those places it's really cool elements that it's just happening organically with what they're doing
3: yeah um, last thing I wanted to mention while I'm thinking no about let's it. keep the show going let's go let's yeah. go um, I, I have a book recommendation that I think would be an interesting sort of like companion to your book okay. it's called Spying on the South What? Uh, And it's a book where Tony Horowitz, the author, retraces Frederick Olmsted's uh, travels through the antebellum South.
4: Whoa. It's
3: fascinating. Totally not a cookbook, obviously. Was he building
4: parks and stuff?
3: He wasn't at the time. He was an undercover writer for the New York Times. What? Yeah, crazy. (laughs) Absolutely bananas. And it's just, and he's like obviously very sort of politically motivated. I'm so buying that book. It is amazing. Do
4: Do you know that he has, uh, I was in Montreal this summer, it was an annual trip my mom and i take we go different places um and he i believe he designed the parks that are around mount royale
3: that would make sense have I you
4: don't... guys been to montreal
3: that's yeah. a whole other show yeah. that's a
4: badass city man i, I really had fun there
3: me too i went about a year ago yeah amazing great time to go is
4: the shout show. out to my mom she's like 70 and we climbed that thing dang she, she rocked it. i didn't yeah. even do that good job mom if you're listening go mom
3: Um, But yeah, it's an amazing book. It's really a page turner. Um, I'm going to get that. You'll love it because, I mean, he goes all the way through to Texas and he tries to like take boats where he would have taken boats. And it's like he has to ride on a coal barge because steamboats don't exist on the Ohio River anymore. Wow. Wow. And I think it's an interesting sort of like look back at that time period and then I think it.
4: Okay. You some help. Oh so I get lifelines.
3: Oh yeah. All the Am lifelines. I the only
4: one playing trivia? <laughs>
3: no, it's everybody. Oh okay. Like, I'm challenging. I was you like all nobody
4: in the email said there will be trivia. <laughs> <laughs> nobody ever said that. Surprise. Right. I'm ready. I'm okay, ready. So I'm caffeinated. Because we're talking start.
3: about seeking the South, I have some trivia today about <laughs> official foods of southern states. Oh
4: my god, I'm not an expert on
3: that. We'll start we'll start easy, I think. What's Florida state pie? Oh.
2: Uh
4: Oh, that's not southern, really, but key lime. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's
3: got to be. That's right. Yeah. So we started with one that's maybe not actually the south. Okay. Uh, It wasn't that easy. It's okay. (laughs) What is Georgia's state vegetable?
4: Collards, maybe. Oh no! I thought you were
2: saying
3: something else.
4: Oh Oh. Oh. wait. So what? What looks like? State vegetable. It's a
3: specific type of a
4: vegetable. Why couldn't you
3: just ask about peaches
4: like everybody else?
2: Yes.
3: I don't know if they're legit. Turnips? Oh, yeah, it
2: must be constantly having peach.
3: No, it's not a peach. It's the other thing that they're known for that's named after a part of the state.
4: Oh, the pe- peanuts is a, a legume.
3: I'll give you oh, guys man, a I'm hint. I'm failing. It's a type of onion.
4: Oh, Vidalia. Oh, there uh, you go. Of course.
3: Our sweet, sweet Vidalia.
4: Oh, I'm failing.
3: What is Texas's state pepper? Think Tex Mex.
4: Well, oh, a jalapeno? Yep.
2: Gotta
4: be. Strong Good. comeback. Yep. <clears throat>
2: okay, that here's... We try to write these so that nobody can ever get any right.
3: So you're doing really well. All right, here we, here we go. Here's Arkansas.
4: Oh, God. Okay.
3: <laughs> what is both Arkansas state fruit and state vegetable? It's in both categories. Oh, my
4: God. Could that, uh, is that a tomato?
3: It is a tomato. Do you know what, what kind of tomato? Ooh.
4: My dad was always into Jet Stars, but I don't think that's what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Oh, Cher- oh, Cherokee? Uh, no. Cher- Cherokee Purple?
3: Not a Cherokee Purple. Brandywine? Nope.
4: Kind of a lifeline. These but guys don't should, know.
2: Should we just it's very specific. We is it an heirloom variety?
3: I, I think so. It's the South Arkansas Vine Ripe Pink Tomato. Oh, my,
4: oh God. my God. I would
2: never have gotten
3: have you I mean, Have you had
2: that? I've have you not, heard of
4: it? I don't even know anything vine about vine, that.
3: Vine, that's wild.
2: Meaning it's pink when
3: it's ripe. So, like, some, some farmer, like, that grew these, like, got lobby government yeah, to be like, make like this there
2: the...
4: There's only top one top person top I can top top. think of who might know. It's Matt McClure, who's the chef of 21C in Bentonville. Oh. If he doesn't know that tomato, nobody's going to know All that right, tomato. right,
3: we'll have to
2: ask him. i going to call him up and be like, random trivia question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Okay, we have almost mentioned this answer. I'm just going to put that out there as a hint. What is North Carolina state fruit?
4: Well, it's not the kiwi, because people don't even know they grow kiwis. <laughs> um, the well, I know they're the sweet potato state. No. Yeah. They're They're the largest sweet potato potato That's interesting. I that. Yeah, I learned that doing this book. Um, okay. Fruit. Uh, I'll tell you what it was that we mentioned that's close. Peach.
3: It was the muscadine. It's oh, close. that makes sense. It's close to the muscadine. That makes sense. Do you know what it is?
4: Oh, it's close to the muscadine. Uh, <laughs> a grape? a grape. <laughs> it is a grape. Some kind of oh, uh, not a concord, Mm-mm. but. Uh, it has a funny name. Oh. Its
3: name traces back to the Algonquin word for sweet bay tree.
2: Oh, okay.
3: Yeah.
4: <laughs> I, I don't know.
3: It is the scuppernog. Oh, oh
4: man, I should have oh, known that. I thought I you that. would. I'm going to tip
2: my tongue. Love it's scuppernog. So- Man,
4: I That's the other thing that. I ate at the Massive farm in Alabama. Fail. I find at least Massive fail. Massive fail. To say scuppernog today, scuppernog. <laughs> I love a scuppernog. I knew scuppernog.
3: that. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> you've mentioned this also, so just think back a little bit. What's South Carolina state snack?
4: Cracklins? <laughs> no. <laughs> 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 Should be, though. Uh, pimento cheese? Mm-mm. I don't know.
3: Hint, the Lee Brothers.
4: Correct. Oh, right on. Yep. right on. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And this is the hardest one, but I had to throw it Oh, in. really?
4: I feel like we've done that already.
3: <laughs> this is the hardest one. It's like a one.
4: 60 Minutes interview.
3: What is Alabama state dessert? Oh.
2: Pie or cake? Is it a hummingbird cake?
3: No, you're clo- You're very close. Really?
2: Coconut cake?
3: You're close-ish. Um, hint is that it was given as a welcome gift in To Kill a Mockingbird.
2: And oh, it was God. invented yes,
3: in my that. home county.
2: Hmm. Claim to fame. It's not of these fame. cakes with tons of stuff on it, right? It's
3: not, as, it's not as crazy as the Hummingbird cake. It's a little more simple. But it's still like...
2: Somewhere in between coconut and Hummingbird.
3: Yeah.
4: yeah. Massive scary. fail.
3: It's called the Lane Cake. Oh, wow. What's in it? I, I don't remember. <laughs> um, Julia Bainbridge did a really lovely write-up about the history of it in Bake from Scratch. Cool. Yeah,
4: very cool. Our
2: um,
3: baking magazine. yes. Okay. Well, that's all our Southern food trivia. You won.
4: No, I didn't. I failed. <laughs> Massive fail. No, you
3: did great. You Those did. were hard.
4: Everybody out there's like, sure, he wrote a book, right? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't even know what Scuppernog does, is. You can see it? It's
3: good. Are there Scuppernogs <laughs> in this book?
4: Uh, no. Uh, one last thing I'll say about that is, um, I didn't do things like that because I. Uh, and Jamie Feldmar, who's an awesome writer, and helped me write this book, and um, shout out to her. Um, she helped keep the trains on time. But uh, I was sort of always writing for this like fictitious character in my head, and Wait. I it was a woman for whatever reason, and I wanted that person to always be able to find these ingredients pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And muscadine and scuppernogs are not what she would be able to find. So I kind of just veered away from things like that. Um, I have lots of respect for those ingredients even though I apparently don't know what scupper nog is. <laughs> I
3: think you like have to have a farm in the South to be able to like right. readily access totally. muscadines and scuppernogs,
2: yeah. And to readily access that that like little brain cache where, yeah. the, where scupper nog lives. Yes.
4: Or go pick wild grapes like my mom and make jelly. And there you go. Like yeah. There you go. Which not everybody can do.
3: Um last question for you. At one point were you Considering doing, like, a more Vietnamese book, cookbook, like, centered on that cuisine? Or is it always going to be, like, this, Seeking the South?
4: No, I was never going to do that. I think that's a fun idea, though.
3: I don't know where I came up with that idea, but, yeah, yeah. just putting it out there, maybe. Seems like there's a whole lot of recipes that we all want to eat.
4: Yeah, I'm working on this whole other idea that um, I think would be really cool, and... I got really lucky with my um, my agent, David Black. Shout out to David Black. He liked this idea from like the first moment and just jumped on it and ran with it. And I got spoiled because I've been presenting him ideas over the last three months, and he hates every single <laughs> one of them. He literally, like, he just like raises his eyebrows and is like, no, no, if we're not doing that. Why would you do that? And I just think... I have this one idea that I think is so badass that I'm not going to share because I still think it's a badass idea. But he finally has um, gotten behind this other thing, which kind of, I'm saying all that because it's kind of like what you're describing, but more. Um, and I, I think it would be um, a place where all those cool Asian things I have in my head mm-hmm. could find a home. Mm-hmm.
2: Quick, turn off the mic so we can ask Rob about it. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> all right, we got to go. Right. We need the scoop.
2: Well, I just have one thing I would like to say, which is, um, well, first of all, enormous thank you, Rob, for coming on our show, making us the first stop on your book tour. Oh, my an God. An thank honor. you
4: for having me. It's so great to be back here and see you all.
2: And uh, just on behalf of HRN, I want to say thank you for something really, really huge that you helped us do a couple of years ago, which was to pull off our first gala Oh yeah. at the Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. We're coming up to year number three and, um, I love it. of the gala, and we're also celebrating our 10th anniversary. And we seriously wouldn't have been able to do it without you. Thank you for helping us get that Wow, that, that gives me goosebumps. Going. We did it in six weeks when we first had the idea. Crazy.
4: Um, I remember like, pulling over on the side of the road and having a conference call, and yeah. like, I was driving somewhere. It was wild.
2: I mean... You, you Thank you, because from the bottom of our hearts, that's been an awesome fundraiser for us. It's such a fun event and really couldn't have done it without you. Um, and also, because in honor of your um, book launch today and for all of your contributions to HRN, I'm very pleased to let you know that you're also uh, one of our newest inductees into the Hall of Fame, Ooh, which is part of our my, anniversary I, celebration. Jeez Louise. <laughs> and, um, we just so appreciate you and everything you. you've done to support the network. And all you're doing for Southern food and food in general and making the world more equitable, sustainable, and delicious, which is what we're all here to do. So what a
4: giant so hug. Much. Thank you. That's yeah. amazing for you to say all those wonderful things. It's been my pleasure. Um, I, I love what you guys do, and I want to support it any way I can. And Patino is a really cool partner and all that, and they're, it's just a win-win for everybody. So I... Don't really feel like I did much, but thank you for saying all those nice well, things. We do. Thank you. Thank and you. we'll
3: see you at the gala.
4: I will be there. Fabulous. Do I have to wear a tuxedo? Yeah. Uh, no.
3: it's
2: a tuxedo. It depends on who you <laughs> ask. You have to wear your Fame pin, though. Yeah. Yes. Uh, We're sending you a pin. Have you? Oh, okay. I was yeah. like, I don't have that. Uh! Don't... <laughs> don't worry. We'll get you one. You won't
4: be sure. That's uh-huh. awesome. Thank you for saying all those nice things. That was really nice. Thank, thank you. you.
3: Come yeah. back anytime.
2: I think we have to plan out
3: yes please yeah please
4: it's really pretty cool yeah yeah
3: love nashville um please yeah. just
4: don't come down there and wear boots and cutoffs just don't do that please
3: but i want to go to please don't do that music whatever row come on broadway yeah whatever it's called Let's go to just Kong. kidding i just want to go to um i just want to go to grand Ole opry mm.
4: heard that yeah. yeah heard that you don't have to wear cutoffs. but i
3: won't no. wear cutoffs i promise
4: okay cool come on down then
3: i'll go to east nashville and just dress like a brooklyn hipster
4: you'll fit right in. Yep. Literally. Yep. You won't even know you left. <laughs> yep.
3: <laughs> it's true. Okay, Rob, thanks so much for being here.
4: It has been my pleasure. Thank you.
3: Congratulations on the book. It's beautiful.
4: It's out. This is my first thing. Yay! All
3: right. We did it. Thank all right. you. Thanks so much. We so will nice. be back with more Happy Hour in a week or two weeks or sometime. We don't know. Some
2: amount of time. We'll see you soon. See
3: you then. Thanks, Take everybody. Care.
4: Thank you. It's so nice of you guys to say all those <laughs> nice you. things.
0: Oh, my gosh. Seriously, we wouldn't be doing this party. This program is powered by Simplecast.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.